So I was curious of where to start this. And uh, I think I'm gonna pick, I'm gonna pick actually my less favorite option. But I'm curious here, who is a Star Wars fan? Who, so tell me your honest reactions about the newest movies that have come out. The new sequel trilogy. Kylo Ren, all that stuff. I know for some of you, you might be like, this is the first Star Wars, what are you talking about? <laughs> See, here's my problem, and this, you know, admittedly this came out before my time even, but I watched episode four and then five and then six, because that's how they were released in the late 70s, and then the, the end of the series came out in 1983. And then just like 20 years later, they started releasing the prequels, episode one, two, and three, and kind of gave us all the backstory, but that was it. Is finished, right? Because episode six finished. And then some production companies and publishers and Disney got greedy and they're like, we can make more money out of this. So they started making more story and they kept it going and they kept it going. And we thought there was the end, but the end now is who knows where the end's gonna go and they're gonna do another set of trilogies. And it just made me all confused because I thought, you know, this is where I thought it was gonna go. We see this happen with TV shows all the time too, right? TV shows, awesome, finale, perfect, everyone's crying and hugging. And then like a few years later, they're like, we have no more ideas, so let's reboot that. And the end is no longer the end, and let's just keep on going. I hope they never do that with Friends. That was it's perfect. It finished, it was done. They ruined a few other series that way. Maybe you can more relate to, like, if you're hiking and you see the top and you work real hard, you hike three hours, you, you get to the top and you find out that's not the top. <laughs> you gotta go further. You're only halfway, that's a false summit. You think the end's in sight, but it's not. Anyways, the point is we don't always know what's coming next, except for like in today's passage when Jesus maybe gives us some examples of what's coming next, what we can expect. And, and what we're gonna be studying today is where Jesus straight up tells his disciples some of the things that they're gonna start experiencing and that's coming up next for them. And what we are, we're in a series called Living in the Future. It's a study on the Gospel of Mark. And we wanted, we call it Living in the Future because what it is is we, we're living in this reality in the world around us, we're living our lives, but as followers of Jesus, we are called actually into a, a kingdom, into a different lifestyle that actually is looking at the future of what's next and is kind of part of this big picture future that involves eternity, that involves God's design for us, that involves God's original design for the entire world. And, and through the Gospel of Mark, what we're doing is taking a look at Jesus' coaching and invite, invitation and guiding us into that future life and how we can be agents that kind of live in this world but actually live part of the future. I love the play on words because future is not typically a term people think of when they think of church. But the reality is we're the most future-oriented. We should have the most future-oriented mindset of all people on the planet because we're looking at eternity as this endless future coming up ahead. And anyway, so the Gospel of Mark, one of four gospel books in the Bible. Uh, they're in the New Testament of the Bible. And what they are is just four accounts of the life and work and words and teachings of Jesus from different perspectives. Mark is fun because it's this short rapid fire, raw, unapologetic, uh, just complete, like here's what it is. It just shows Jesus a little bit manic at times. He's just is intense, he's extreme, high and low, he's hugging and crying, he's calling his best friend Satan, he goes on to the next miracle, there's no fluff in between. It's really helpful to get one of these big thick books, like a study Bible, to read that, just to get the depth out of it. Uh, to be honest, the, most of my message this morning is just looking at all the footnotes for this passage. 
So I just, you know, I gave my, I, if anything's wrong, I say it's blame that book, not me. But we're, what we're going to do is we are going through Mark chapter 13 this morning. We're going to do the whole chapter. It's a fun chapter. Some of you, you might know it right away. Uh, you might just be like, oh, yeah, I, I recognize this one. It's triggered an entire series of books about the end of the world. Or it's like one of your favorite things of like, I've been tracking and watching the news, and I know that Putin is this person, and it's all here. Some of you might have no idea. Some of you might love this morning. It might be a bit academic. Some of you, if you doze on and off and you wake up for the parts where I say, like, the abomination that causes desecration, you're going to think I'm nuts. You're not really going to enjoy this morning. But hopefully you wake up for the end part where we really kind of bring it all together. But we're going to go through the entire chapter 13. And just to give me a little bit of help this morning, I've got Nathan's going to be reading through. So, you know, it's not just my voice all morning, and he's got a bit more passion in it to read. No, but let's just jump in. If you got your Bibles, Mark chapter 13. If you got your phones, super worth opening up. Take some notes this morning. Circle stuff, highlight stuff. And uh, we're just going to head into it. So, Nathan, if you take us away, Mark chapter 13, verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple... One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. All right, let's take a break just to set up the context of what's happening. So just before this moment, a few chapters ago, Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the capital city. All of the religious focus was put into Jerusalem. And, and Jesus starts off by bullying, getting a fight with a fig tree. We won't even get into that. It's kind of fun. comes up. And, and most of it he spends in the temple that the disciples just talked about, and not honestly having a good time. He's kind of going at it with religious leaders. They're trying to challenge him and trap him, and he's kind of challenging them back and deconstructing all the stuff that they put in place. And the thing is, the temple became this barrier to people getting to know God, rather than the place where people actually met with God, where heaven and earth met together. And, and so then what is kind of wild, they spend all this time, and Jesus is just slamming it down. The temple is, is useless. The temple's useless. The temple's useless. And then they leave, and the first thing the disciples are like, okay, but Jesus, kind of a sweet building, right? It looks cool. I like it. We, we do stuff like this, I think, quite often when there's things where we know God has in our life. He said, this is bad. This is evil. This is not going to help you. In fact, this will hinder you constantly. And we're like, I know, I know, I get that, God. I totally do. But it's kind of sweet, right? Like in a sterilized kind of way. Like I know, I know, God, the love of money is not good for me, but look at the stuff it can buy, right? Like, God, I know that, that lust and the stuff I kind of bring into my life is not helpful, but it feels kind of good, too. And in a disconnected way, right? God, I'm not saying it's good, but it feels good. And, and so then this is what it does. It just straight up, it, 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 I get it for the sake of the disciples. What I want to do is paint you a picture for why they were so enamored. Because beyond just being raised in a, a culture and a philosophy that nearly worshipped this building. This was the second temple that was created by uh, Herod. And here's a quote from Josephus, a historian who said this, the exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye for being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold. The sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was purest white. Some of the stones in the building were 45 cubits in length, 5 cubits in height, and 6 cubits in breadth. For those of you who don't know what a cubit is, it translates to roughly super really big. 
about the size of a bus, actually. The stones, single stone, about the size of a greyhound bus. And so the disciples are kind of right. They're like, but Jesus, it's a sweet building, right? And, you know, all, all that religious stuff aside, Jesus is still amazing. And so then this kind of triggers Jesus a bit. And then this drives to his response. So continue on in verse 2. Do you not see these great buildings? Replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. It's kind of like, again, the disciples saying, like, Jesus, I know that you said that all the, the religion had corrupted our relationship with God and the temple has become this idolatrous barrier to people, but it's still pretty awesome. And then Jesus just goes, he's like, it's going away. And soon it's going to be completely destroyed. These things that you think still have any merit in the world, I will destroy. I'll make sure I see the destruction through. Not one stone overturned. And then this is where we start seeing the, the tone of this passage is going to be prophecy. It's going to be telling a little bit about the future coming up. Because interestingly enough, I love the fact that he used those words, not a single stone will be left unturned. Shortly after this, a few decades later, after Jesus said these words, Jerusalem was wiped out. Huge war, massive genocide. We'll go into the horrors of all that happened, but part of that involved the temple completely destroyed by General Titus and his army. They came in, flattened it, but then what even happened is in the fires and in all the destruction, there was so much gold on the building, right? And it melted between all the rocks and they wanted to get it back. So they dug it apart and smashed and turned over every single stone to get all the gold back, just like it was said in there. So again, just Jesus saying like, this is gonna go away real bad. The disciples won't let it go though. What's happening next? As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? So the disciples hear this troubling news and, and they want to know, okay, Jesus, you just scared us. Like, that's an awful future. When's it going to happen? Can you tell us when, can we prep for it? Can we know? And, and this question, if you got your Bibles, like, like underline it, highlight it, this is key. Because often this passage, a lot of passages in the Bible, we get so hung up on like this crazy thing that was said and we miss the fact of what's happening. So everything that's coming after this is Jesus answering this question, which is to what? When's the, when's the temple gonna be destroyed? Right? They didn't ask for when's the end of the space-time continuum in the cosmos of the universe. They said, well, when's this gonna happen? Which you know, we'll get to is a big deal to them. But when's this going to happen? So then what we do, this is going to help us. I'm going to quiz you on it. And when we come back and you're thinking all these crazy things and that for sure that meant Trump, I'm going to say, well, what was the context? What's Jesus talking about? And then we're going to go off into verse five. Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. All right, so Jesus starts going into what is about to happen. He doesn't answer them directly, but he starts saying, let me tell you about the things that are going to come. And he starts off with a warning. There's going to be three warnings we're going to go through. The first warning, watch out that no one deceives you. 
This is the most important thing Jesus wants his disciples to hear. It's the first thing he says, watch out that no one deceives you. He says, many will come in my name claiming I am he. And then he goes off to say all these things. He got wars and famines and floods and earthquakes and natural disasters and civil wars, rumors of wars, all these things. And he says, don't be alarmed, it's gonna happen. And what, you know, what's fascinating, we read that and we start tracking like, oh, okay, is it this war and then this thing happened? All of these things happen within a few decades after Jesus said these things. And then the crazy thing is they also continued to happen in the decades after, in the centuries after. But within the first few decades after this, we have one of the, the big wars, uh, war between Israel and Rome, this massive uprising. General Titus brought his armies. They massacred thousands. They crucified more. And they destroyed the temple. There was the Pompeii disaster in uh, 70 AD that happened. In fact, many historians say that just generally in ancient Mediterranean area, this was a rough time in history. The first century uh, AD was just changing borders, changing countries, war against war against war, insane natural disasters and flooding and vile geopolitics. And then and pick up on this, because we don't want to miss it. Jesus still says, the end's still to come. That's not the end. This is just the beginning of birth pains. And circle this, because this is going to be a, a huge imagery, and we're going to come full circle back to it. The beginning of birth pains. Jesus is just setting up the landscape of everything that's going to be surrounding those who are following Jesus in the nation they're living, everything that's kind of going to be happening externally. But then he's going to go on to tell them about the stuff that they're going to specifically face themselves. So picking up at verse 9. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. This is not a cheery Sunday morning kind of devotional, hey? You sure that's the right passage I gave you? you I guess I printed it out. Okay, it's not Nathan's fault. No, this is what Jesus is, is still sharing with his disciples. This is heavy stuff. This is awful. And, and what it is is Jesus is trying to paint the picture of how awful things are going to be for the disciples. And the, the, the thing is, they, they ask a simple question, right? Like, Jesus, when's this going to happen? He doesn't answer that question. Instead, he just scares the pants off of them with all these horrible things. And when we read this now, 2,000 years later, the thing is, it's actually so easy to get hung up on all of these things. And we start charting, and we kind of put ourselves in those shoes, and we think, like, could I face that? What we do often, I wonder if the disciples even miss is also the beauty piece in it where Jesus says, and it, it's, it's in there, uh, don't worry beforehand what to say, whatever is given you at the time, the Holy Spirit will be with you. And Jesus is saying, in all of this, people will hate you because of me. I'm not gonna abandon you. I will still be there with you. It's a small little piece, but it's still saying God hasn't left you. You don't even need to prepare the words you're gonna say, I'll still be with you. And he says, everyone will hate you because of me. And the thing is, this is because in the darkest times of 
people's lives and the darkest times of the disciples' lives that they're about to start facing, Jesus already, well, he's about to, and he's saying this, he's going to experience that. In our context, Jesus has already experienced the darkest that humans can throw at other humans. Been tortured, been hated, been spit on, been peed on. Jesus was there. God was there, and he says, and I won't leave you in that. I've already been there because I love you. He's a relatable God. And in those moments, he stays with us. It gets worse, though. We're going to verse 14. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Does that make sense to everyone? Let me just move on. It's kind of simple. It's something you could get, like, if you're a heavy metal fan, you could get that, like, tattooed on your back. Like, this sounds like the cover album for some crazy rock song, The Abomination That Causes Desolation. I love it. Or, like, some Dungeons and Dragons theme. What does that mean? Okay, so, a lot of what Jesus is saying here, and, and we're going to see more of this coming up, and if, if you got your physical Bibles or even some of the apps I know it has, there's going to be, like, little footnotes or numbers or, or letters next to like almost every second line in this whole passage because what's happening is Jesus isn't using just his own words out of the blue. He's using language from the Old Testament and from other prophets. The abomination that causes desolation. And, and again, this is, I don't know this off the top of my head. It's in, in my big fancy study Bible here. And Google sometimes helps. Not often when it comes to the Bible, but sometimes helps. The abomination that causes desolation is a reference directly from the book of Daniel, a prophet in the Old Testament. And what it was pointing to was a prophecy that happened about 200 years earlier, uh, 168 BC, where there was a, a Greek king, um, and, and Antiochus Epiphanes, who went into the temple and he put up a pagan altar, sacrificed a pig, drank its blood in full view of all of the Israelites. This is about, it breaks dozens of their laws, their rituals, their practices. This was the biggest mockery of their religion that they could imagine. And it was called the abomination that causes desolation. And so what he's doing is bringing this up again. He said, that happened. You remember that happened. They would know this language, like the worst thing that could ever happen in a church. I, I was trying to think of stuff and I didn't like the things I was thinking for a metaphor. So I won't even, I'll let you think of that yourself. It's not drums, by the way. <laughs> Got to step up the intensity a little bit more than that. The worst thing possible. And he says, so what's the response? You got to leave. And, he, and here's, here's where he really ramps it up. So uh, let's hop into verse 15. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be the days of distress, unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. So only pregnant or new mothers here, they're like stressing as they read this. It's not, it's not as bad, we have cars now, it's, you don't have to run hundreds of miles, but Jesus ramps it up, and, and again, here's the thing, from our perspective, we can't really fathom the impact 
the destruction of the temple, the abomination of desolation would have, because we're living in a completely different framework, but for this entire, uh, the disciples and the entire world around them that they grew up in, the whole world thinking was, the temple was kind of a microcosm of the universe. It was where heaven met earth. This is the center of religion. This is the only place where you actually get to be close to and relate to God. That's not the world we live in. And Jesus is saying that's about to go down. That's about to end and everything else around you, like when that's gone, you have nothing left to have hope in. And then he says, you're gonna have a tragic, awful time of life that you're gonna need a lot of hope, but the, the thing that you previously had hope in is gone. So he just starts ramping it up of, this is not gonna be easy. And now here's the key piece that I think is great. So time to get out. It's time to get out and leave. When wars start coming, when oppression starts coming, when conflict starts coming, Jesus didn't say, stand firm and fight for Israel. He didn't say, stand firm and fight for the temple and defend it so it stays strong. Stand firm and fight for a flag saying my name on it. He said to get out and leave. This is Jesus' nonviolent instruction and approach because the thing is, this is actually a bit of a passage and a statement against kind of like what was a more nationalistic culture. And he's saying, I'm working on something so much bigger than a country or a brand or a church. I'm working on something so much bigger than you can imagine. And this is not the time to fight and die because that's what is going to be the end. A lot of historians kind of point out that something like 10% of the known world, the Roman Empire, uh, were killed during the, the first century under the name of Jesus. Millions and millions of people. There are stories of even people fleeing who got caught by river crossings and the army caught up to them. Awful. Like we can't really understand it. And, and instead Jesus says, you gotta leave. When you see that horrible thing happen, it's time to go. Don't stand and fight. Don't bother trying to defend. Just leave. And I think where we can relate to this often is when we start really reading some of these pieces Jesus adds into it. Don't go back into the field to get your cloak. Don't go down into the house, just leave where you're at. It's not gonna be convenient. So many times I think we try to put ourselves in passages like this and we start saying, okay, you know, and then this politician got elected, right? Or Trump came on, or it was uh, Bill C, whatever, something happened and that's it, like that's the abomination. So I'm gonna join this group over here, we're gonna have our meetings, and I'm gonna align with this crew here now, and these Facebook pages, I'm gonna share all these things on my story, I got a bunch of likes. You kinda enter into a fairly convenient, just a different lifestyle. Jesus is saying, when you're gonna start fleeing because for the sake of the gospel, it's not gonna be convenient. It's gonna be awful. And what I'm trying to say is a bit of a disconnection. Sometimes we, we put ourselves into these extreme apocalyptic moments way sooner than I think we need to. And I think it becomes a distraction for us, thinking we're already fighting the end time battles here. That's not what Jesus told us to do. What, were the, what was the warnings he gave us so far? We've had two of them. Be on your guard. Watch out that no one deceives you. This is kind of like personal things. Like, what are you focusing on? Don't get distracted. Be on your guard. The action Jesus calls for in response to these heinous and complete sacrilegious blasphemies is to run. And actually, Mennonite history, what our church was kind of founded on and by, is very similar things to this. Not convenient to leave your home country when you're persecuted, but the response was not to stand and fight, it was to leave. Not convenient to run. This is the story of refugees that we have some families of here in the church as well. 
everything you knew, you grew up in your home family, your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents, it's time to leave. There's something bigger going on. Now, we're going to see what Jesus is working on. Nothing will be equaled to this again. Let's pick it up in verse 20. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. Third warning, be on your guard. It's kind of repetitive. And here he gives even a little bit more clarity. False messiahs, false prophets, people who are going to say, I'm going to be Jesus. And in our day, and even in the days following, there weren't people who literally said, I am Jesus of Nazareth. They were people who said, I am now God's chosen and appointed one. I have an idea that's going to save us. I have an idea that's going to bring our kingdom back into glory. I have an idea that's going to make everything right and easy for you and cut your taxes down and make life better so you could buy three homes and rent the other two out. I, people who come in with ideas, I'm not just talking about politics. I'm talking about, though, the idea that Jesus is speaking against here is pay attention to the words he's saying and his instructions and don't get deceived by people who will say, I can defend. This is actually what happened. I, I can't remember the name. Bar. It started with a bar. But there, there was somebody who came as a prophet who said, I can defend Israel against Rome. He's the one who led the fight against General Titus and got the majority of them completely killed. Because Jesus' instruction wasn't to say to stand and fight. It's not stand and fight for your country. God's not on your side anymore for that. God is on a bigger side for something that he's trying to preserve. And we actually see it too. God cut it short so that there's still people all around the world following Jesus. God cut that time short so that it wasn't a complete and utter wipeout. This was an awful time that happened in order to show the end of the religious time, the temple and all of that world, but so God's word could actually spread. And then Jesus, you know, he kind of caps us off saying, I've told you everything ahead of time. So the disciples are thinking, good, we're prepped. We're ready. Right? They put a poster on their wall. No, that's not what happened. Jesus keeps going on. Verse 24. But in those days... Following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Okay, I want to I talk a little bit about apocalyptic poetry genre here. So what Jesus is doing again is pulling a quote directly from one of the Old Testament books. This is the book of Isaiah. Now here's a bit of a nerdy brain thing. You can like Bible study tool. Uh, pick it up. It's a really handy way to read through these kind of statements. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky. And, and again, too, if you read stuff at face value, you kind of start saying like, oh, okay, this is like the nuclear apocalypse, right? And the rockets are coming down. And you try to create everything to be a metaphor. But this is actually taking words from the book of Isaiah for an event that had actually already happened with the Babylonian Empire, and it was, it was kind of mocking their religious system that involved the sun and the moon and the stars and the end of their temple and their system. So this it was already happening. So it wasn't talking about Putin versus Trump. It wasn't talking about whatever's going to happen next in North Korea. 
But it, it kind of was, because here's the, if there's a bumper sticker thing you can write down in a quote, a really helpful thing for apocalyptic, prophetic genre in the Bible, it is using language from things that have already happened. It is talking about an event that will happen. It's talking about a world where these things will continue to happen. Okay, we ought, we put our, again, we put ourselves into these moments thinking like, oh, it is the worst time in humanity. Look at all these things fulfilling the prophecies. It has been worse, and it will be worse, too. These are things that have happened. These are things that are going to happen. They're things that are going to happen again. On this side of heaven, after the fall of man, after sin entered the Garden of Eden, God's intentional design for humanity, him living in relationship with us, us obeying God completely and holistically, but then we have free will, and we have a world that's full of free will, and we have a whole world full of people living their own way, not living in the way of God's design for us. And we, are, we do that. The world is broken because we're here, because I'm here. And that's why we have prophecies like this that kind of repetitively ring true over and over again. And so then we get a quote like this, uh, like I said, so talking about the fall of Babylonian Empire, now Jesus is using this against Israel and their temple and their religion. This is gonna happen again to you. We really can't fathom the impact of this. Even the disciples who've spent three years with Jesus, listening to and traveling with and eating with him for three years every single day, 24 seven, they really could never fathom what was about to happen. This would be like, big war happens tomorrow, Canada, US, it's all Russia now. That'd be like a microcosm. Like you can't fathom, it'd be such a radical, drastic shift in their minds, every single thing about the universe is wrong now. It's not just inconvenient. It's like the world is blanketed by something completely evil. Why is all of this got to happen? We finally come to the end of the passage, nearing the end of the passage, is, is getting there. Jesus just gives us this big, long, ver verboding wake-up call. So his disciples are like glued. They're like sweating, waiting for What's Jesus going to say to make this better? Uh, starting at verse 26, we see a little bit of that. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Okay, more beautiful, poetic, prophetic, apocalyptic genre. Um, I'm just going to quickly go here. I'll just give you the answer to it. Again, right from the study Bible. This is a quote from Daniel. The Son of Man comes from, is this mysterious, godlike man in the book of Daniel is this prophecy. And Jesus, through his whole ministry, became his favorite nickname for himself right? Uh, who here gives themselves a nickname, right? It's sometimes a kind of awkward thing. If you're Jesus, you can do it. You can call yourself a nickname from the Old Testament of the Bible prophecies. But the big picture here is where we start getting a beautiful image of what Jesus is saying. Why all of this stuff is going to happen? Because the Son of Man will be coming on the clouds, not like surfing, right? And we see the big pictures and, and Jesus is coming and all cool. Clouds is a representation of what's called in high Bible theology, a thing called a theophany, you guys like know that word, you use it every day. Theophany means a revealing. It means God revealing. You can literally see and experience him. This is Jesus saying, after all of this, this is all gonna happen. The temple's gotta be completely wiped out. Everything's gonna be bad and awful because then finally the world is gonna see that I am who I've been telling you that I am and nobody's listening. I am the son of God. 
All of this is going to happen so that Jesus is finally vindicated and finally seen to be who he is. And now we're 2,000 years later knowing that truth because these things happen. They had to happen in such an awful way. What we're doing right now here too, Jesus says, I will gather all of my elect is just high Jewish language for saying those who, who God is working with and connecting with. Us here meeting in church this morning, gathered together, is fulfilling this prophecy because it didn't end. It's still going. And we worship and we celebrate like we did singing this morning that Jesus is Lord. That's the prophecy. Let's continue on in verse 28. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Okay, I know I'm saying it on repeat, but I don't see a lot of you doing it. You're not bringing pens and highlighters to church, but even if you got a thing, highlight that my words will never pass away because that is the whole point of what Jesus is talking about here. This is, this is it. So he starts off with a reference two chapters back. I mentioned Jesus got into a fight with a fig tree. He's probably feeling bad. He's like, okay, I use a fig tree for a bad example. I'll use it for a good example. Um, but what he's getting to is he's saying all of these things are going to happen, and heaven and earth will pass away, which is common Jewish idiom, uh, ancient Jewish idiom for heaven and earth, is the temple, that's their religion, their universe, their thing, that's gone. But Jesus' words will never pass away. If there's a bumper sticker or a thing you could sharpie on your Bible or a thing to remind yourself constantly every single day when you're reading the Bible, these words are clear. I, I heard from one author, just to remember, the Bible is about God, not about you. If you read the Bible like it's about God, you understand and learn about God. If you read the Bible like it's about you, you become the hero of the story and you start getting yourself into all sorts of crazy places and worlds where everything's around you. It's not about you. It's written to you. You can learn from it. You're spoken about at times in it. But the Bible is about God. And that's why this whole passage here, too, we're reading it, and the disciples are thinking, like, man, this is awful, and Jesus is telling us all these things. They had no idea it was going to be recorded and, you know, read out here in church in Mission, B.C., in a country that never existed 2,000 years later. But if they were listening to these words, okay, what's God up to? What's God up to? Because they weren't even quite there yet. It didn't happen until after the resurrection that it finally clicked for the disciples. This whole thing, it was about God. God being with his disciples amidst the worst of times. God being present and finally being revealed to the world as the king. God establishing a new era. And at the end of it all, too, saying that God's words, his instructions, that we can still read the Bible and Jesus' words in my Bible, they're in the color red. They've never passed away. This prophecy is being fulfilled at this moment. And, and right, this whole thing started off with what were the disciples asking? This is the quiz part, right? At the start. This whole thing, Jesus went into this rant because the disciples asked Jesus a question. He kind of scooted it. Jesus said, the temple's going to be destroyed. And the disciples said, when? And then Jesus said, well, you're going to have a bad time. World's falling apart, earthquakes, wars, 
everything's going to be rough. You're going to be persecuted and tortured. Don't worry, I'll be with you. And then the clouds and the Son of Man and all these things and the moon and the stars. And the disciples are like, okay, but when? And then we get at the end of the chapter. Jesus kind of switches gears here and talks about a pretty big picture thing. But verse 32. No one knows about that day or hour, or even, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. You gotta love Jesus in a, in a zoom out context a little bit here. The disciples are like, hey Jesus, when? And he goes on this huge rant, and, and then they're waiting. And then he's like, oh, yeah, that's right, your question. But about that day, I don't know. I don't know. The angels don't even know, right? You're, no one knows, really. God knows, but he, in this, I, we could go into a huge thing. And there's this funny, this passage, if you read commentaries and you nerd out, like I'm paid to nerd out about this kind of stuff, and you have commentaries, and there's like a paragraph for each little verse in the Gospel of Mark, and then chapter 13 is like the rest of the book. It just has so much depth in it. But even Jesus himself says, I don't know. I don't know the plan. He's God, right? It's kind of this weird thing. He's God, but he's limited at this point and as human. He doesn't know. But he gives us the warning. He reminds us. The three warnings in his previous passage says it again. Be on guard. Be alert. This could happen any time. It could happen right now. No, it didn't. Okay. I wrote that in. I was like, what if? He said... When is that going to happen? Well, so the destruction of the temple happened, but then Jesus starts talking about something bigger as well. And it's kind of, you know, what we're cluing into. He says it's about the end of the world. Everything he talked about was the end of a world. In that context was the end of their world. Everything was coming down. But then we entered into this new, what is the future we're talking about? The disciples are going to be living in the future. We're living in this kind of current moment too. It's still broken. It's still a mess. But he's also talking about something bigger and different too. He says, I'm returning. God's going to come and make everything right. That's the whole plan of everything that Jesus talked about. He said, God designed the world for perfection, got broken. Sorry, people, you ruined it, but I have a plan. We're going to make it better. God's going to come make it better. When's that going to happen? I don't know. But wait and wait with hope and expectation. I heard the way one author said it. We our hope and our faith is with the expectation, not just the, I, you know, I, I cross my fingers that God does it, but the expectation. We know that God will do this. We just don't know when. Don't get distracted when people sell you a poster saying it's going to be in, what was the last one, 2012? Didn't happen then either. Um, we don't know when. But we see all the things that Jesus says to be on guard for, he wants this to be preached to all nations, for everyone to be hearing about God, for the word of God to spread and not die out. We're in that point. We're speaking the word. But we don't know when it's going to happen. So here's, here's where this is all going to land up. The reality is there's two futures. 
there's kind of two aspects, two levels of futures that we're living in. There's the current future we're in, which is in this broken world. It's where we're at right now. It's where the disciples were going to enter into in all of this time. The temple is destroyed, all of the previous system, and understanding of God over, new understanding of God now. And it's amazing the way the New Testament authors all wrote it. Temple is destroyed, but the way Jesus described and we kept, the disciples kept missing it, we're the temple now. God is with us. God is here. He is with you. That's the future we're living in, but we're also still living in a world fully corrupted by sin. We are corrupted by sin. So we have this tension, and we read apocalyptic stuff like this, and we can relate to it because it's things that have happened and will continue to happen. There are wars. There are natural disasters. There is pain. There is violence. There is betrayal. But I think we can also take from this in our current moment, we should be able to read this passage and have a posture of thankfulness. Because I know as much as we, we kind of live, like I remember growing up in high school, being a Christian was, it amounted to just being uncool, right? You kind of would simply, you just didn't swear as much and you didn't get to have sex as early as everyone else did. That was, for the most part, and I know it's, it's progressed to the point where now a lot of Christian views following Jesus gets to the place where you, you get some pretty big idealism and virtue fights people. Can you treat you almost in a similar level to like racist kind of levels, like you are maybe despised for some views, but we really, if we're honest, don't face the kind of persecution Jesus is talking about has happened, and that does happen all around the world. Here in Canada, in this moment, Guys, it's not that bad. It's annoying at times to be a follower of Jesus. It is painful and hurtful. And I know some of you are living in a place where it's close to home. If it's in your home and there's conflict and disagreement, there's a little bit of hatred towards the views and Jesus. And that hurts. And I'm so sorry. And we're here for you. This is the church family for that reason. For a lot of us, it's not that bad. And what that means is not, not to feel guilty about it, but to be thankful for God to protect us from that. That doesn't mean we can become complacent and forget about the fact that God is coming back, that Jesus is returning, and we need to be on guard. We need to make sure that we're not being distracted. It can kind of go both ways, that we don't get hyper-fixated on the end times and on all the stuff and the numbers and that this is happening over there in this next election. That's not it, but we can also become complacent. We're like, none of this really matters anymore. It's fine. Be on guard. It could happen at any point. But this is all because the term Jesus used at the very start of this, birth pains. Something better is coming still. Jesus uses this imagery a lot, and I think it's very fitting. It's something that all of humans, who here was birthed? We can all kind of relate then, right? We all had a, in some form or fashion, and depending on different relationships, but a mother, a father to whatever, Many of us have experienced it directly, right? Birth is messy. It is painful. Labor is difficult. It is challenging. Except for we have this one friend who's they've had four kids, and I think their first kid was like, uh, she's like, I have a stomach ache. And husband's like, oh, well, it's, it's your due date today, isn't it? Maybe we should. No, I don't think so. Oh, stomach ache like, felt a little bit worse that time. Let's go to the hospital. Half hour later, baby's born. I won't say their name because all the women here are seething about that now, right? The rest of you are normal humans. She was super Dutch, so just like designed for procreation. 
I, I'm, I'm reluctant to say much about this, but Jesus uses this analogy because after all of that, what happens? New life, right? And that's how we come into existence. That's how like, our kids will come into existence and our grandkids and everything. New life makes it so much, like it makes it worth all of that. Even all the pain, even those of us who experience all the struggles that come along with even post-birth and all that challenging stuff, new life comes into the world. And Jesus is saying, this is the beginnings of birth pain. Something's coming. There's another future we're talking about. We're living in a future where we know God will be with us during all of the hard times. How are we supposed to live, right? And, and I get, I relate to the disciples. We just want to know. God, the world's messed up. What's going to happen? Tell us. We just want to know the end so we, we can kind of clearly know what's coming up. And instead, God's not concerned with us knowing. God invites us instead into trusting him and trusting into the new life that's coming because the next future is something that's brought forth by God because for 2,000 years, we have tried and failed to make that new life come, right? It's not going to be because of us. The coming kingdom, heaven on earth, is not because of us. We will live like agents in the kingdom and learn to live the way God designed us to live but man, Christianity has made a mess of that, trying to do the same thing. And uh, I heard a quote that said, World War I essentially broke down to nations fighting, thinking that God was on their side, and they were doing the Christian thing against each other. It was civil war. Eternity and new life is coming because we trust that God will do it. And only God can do it. That's our hope. The world is a mess. God, we want to know. And he says, trust me. And then we trust. And our position as followers of Jesus is saying, God, we know that you are the only thing that can make this all right. So we'll wait. We'll wait faithfully. We'll be on guard. We'll stay close to you, stay close to the Bible. And the reason why this all happens is because Jesus lived and died for us. He suffered for us so that we're relatable, that he, he's a relatable God. He experienced all of these awful things to the peak of what awful things people can experience. Jesus suffered that first. And now we have that opportunity to trust because he invited us into that, to trust that he can do it and that Jesus, or that God raised Jesus from the grave and that we can share in that future. Amen? You guys stuck with me through it? Thank you so much, Nathan, for reading that passage. What we do with that news, if this is the first time hearing that, the beautiful invitation is, I, unfortunately, it's kind of a bit of a maybe bummer church service. I'm kind of up here saying, like, guys, the world kind of sucks. And... It's not going to change until God comes back, but we have a hope in eternity, and that's a hope and invitation that's extended to you. You can experience that as well. I would love to tell you about that too. Come find me after the service. I'll just hang out around here somewhere. And for the rest of us following Jesus, be on guard and wait earnestly for him and share this message. The reason why another author in the New Testament said the reason why Jesus isn't back yet is because one more needs to hear it. For those of you who, in your adult life, say if maybe you were saved, you finally met Jesus for the first time in 2010, thank God he didn't come back in 2009, right? So don't waste that time. Don't become complacent in it. Let's pray. God, What a funny passage to read through this morning, God. The words that you give us of these destructions, these awful times, thank you that we are not currently experiencing that, God. But we pray for and our hearts break for and, and give us ways and means to 
provide relief to those who are suffering similar pains around the world right now. That does happen all over the world. God, there's persecution. Thank you for the relative peace we experience right now. God, I just, I pray for, we, we pray for expecting return for you, God. We can't wait for you to make it right. But right now in this moment, empower us to share the good news, God, that more people can come to know about you and to trust in you and to know that you can make and will make everything right. God, I just pray that this morning we're empowered, we're strengthened, we're encouraged by this passage. And God, like hiking up to another peak, maybe we just got to the fall summit, but we know there's a great view at the top. God, give us the energy to keep going on and keep going on. So God, we pray blessing over this morning that you go with us as we go into the week, into our places of work. God, for those who are going into school as well. God, we lift this service up to you. In your name, amen.